But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have your word before us. This is you communicating with your creation. And I pray that our ears would be attentive. Please use me as your vessel and please open our ears to to hear your word, to believe your word, and to apply your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As you're finding your seats, I'd ask you to have your outline nearby. I'd also ask you to have Matthew 24 open before you. We're going to look at many, many different verses from this passage. Uh, This passage is one of the most important passages in Scripture to me. Uh, God used this passage at a really vital time in my development as a believer and as a teacher of the Word of God. This was a passage that God used to show me not just the value of every word, but literally the value of every letter of His precious Word. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful that, that based on the, the timing of Pastor Brian setting the schedule and the timing of our baby coming, that everything worked out and I have the privilege of bringing, uh, being able to teach this passage. Let's remind ourselves of some things. You, you've got, if you've got your notes before you, you see the title, it, it starts with the Olivet Discourse. So we're still in the passage that we refer to as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is teaching his disciples, some important thing on the Mount of Olives. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter to remind ourselves of the context. Chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So that's the question. If you've got your Bible before you, you see two question marks there from the disciples. So, So the way the disciples are doing it, they're asking two different questions. And as Pastor Brian has taught so well the last few weeks, where we are approaching this very controversial passage that even though the disciples are asking, it says two questions, we believe the disciples believed these two questions were connected. That this is one question that the way we are approaching this passage, 
is actually two things, and Jesus is taking the time to answer the two questions that are there. So let me explain, as Pastor Brian's done such a good job the last few weeks, something is in the disciples' very near future, the destruction of the temple. Jesus tells them in verse 2, he said, you're looking at this temple, you just showed me this physical structure, you need to know there's a time coming where it's going to be destroyed literally to the point not even one stone will be left upon another. Complete devastation. We began the year talking about worldview and us desiring a Christian worldview. Let's imagine the worldview of the disciples. When the disciples were walking around with Jesus for these three very important years of discipleship, they did not have the Old Testament and the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So their scriptures, their word of God that they had was what we refer to as the Old Testament. And think about what the Old Testament says about the temple. The value of that, that, that structure. That building represented God's presence with his people. That was literally the focus, the center point of worship for all of God's people. That building had so much significance. And now here you are, a disciple. Your ancestors all came and worshipped in this temple. This temple was the center of worship for as long as your generations go back, all the way to David having that desire in his heart and Solomon building this structure. And here's the Messiah with you. And the Messiah, the Son of God, says, that building's coming down. So you hear that, and you as a disciple, you make some conclusions. If that building comes down, that's the end. So you privately ask Jesus, Jesus, tell us about the end. Tell us what we need to look forward to so that we know when that building comes down and when you return to bring about the end of the age. Now, the way Pastor Brian and I are approaching this, this passage is not how all believers approach this passage. There are people that we love and respect that see chapters 24 and 25 a little differently. Um, but we, we humbly come before you and we say that we believe that Jesus answers both questions. The first part of the question being, when will the temple come down? And the second part of the question being, when will the end be? Or what will the end look like when it comes? So according to the way that we are approaching this passage, this is now a turning point in the, this Olivet Discourse. That we believe that verses 4 through verse 35 are talking about the first question, the destruction of the temple that came in AD 70. And so we're all on the same page. Whether you believe this passage is talking about the destruction of the temple or not, all Christians agree the temple came down. It's a historical fact. In AD 70, Jerusalem was conquered and that temple came down. And so whether you believe this passage is talking about it or not, we're all on the same page. The destruction of the temple greatly affected God's people in a huge way. So Pastor Brian did such a great job taking us for, through verses 4 and 35, addressing what we believe is the first part of the question. When will the temple be destroyed? So now we believe from this verse, 
to the end of chapter 25 is addressing the second question. Tell us about the return of Christ and the end of the age. Now, if you look in your notes, I'm going to mention three different reasons why I believe the text tells us that this approach is correct. First of all, letter A in your notes, I believe that the text shows us there's a sense of urgency that is absent from this point forward. If we look back in verse, chapter 24, we look at verses 6 and 7, Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. We go down the passage a little bit to chapter 24, verse 16. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 17, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Verse 19, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies. Verse 21, there will be great tribulation. What we're seeing in these passages, the war is literally in their backyard. The, the, the situation is so dire, if you are on your roof, you don't have time to go back into your house to grab supplies. Leave now. It's that much of an emergency. So we have this urgency up to this point, but look now with me at the, in our passage today, verses 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. What's happening in verses 40 and 41, the, the image we have here is men and women doing their daily mundane tasks that they would do on any given Tuesday. If war is in your backyard, you're not going to the mill to do your work. If the army is invading your city, you're not worried about your crops right now because you're worried for your life. You're not doing the mundane. You're running. And from this point forward, we see that that urgency that has been mentioned so far in this passage is absent. Another thing, letter B, the timelines and signposts that we've been seeing up to now are absent. If we look at chapter 24, verse 6, look at the chain of events we see. There, there are things that Jesus says, this and then this, this and then this. Look for this so you know this is coming. Verse 6, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled because all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. There's a chain of events. Verses 15 and 16. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Pastor Brian's passage last week um, about the parable of the fig trees. We look at the parable of the fig tree, verses 32 and 33, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know the summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. We're seeing signposts. We're seeing things the disciples are supposed to identify. You will see this in the near future. And when you see this, you know if I'm... <laughs> You know what Jesus said is going to transpire. And you know there's a certain way you should respond. We have all these signs, all these timelines, but then we get to verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows. 
not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. I'm reading from New King James. You might have a translation before you that includes the phrase, nor the Son will know. Not all translations have that phrase in Matthew, but all the translations have it in Mark. And I believe it's on the screen behind me, but Mark 13, verse 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Up to now, what have we seen? You're going to see this respond appropriately. You're going to see this, then you know this is coming. We get to here, verse 36. Not even the all-knowing Son of God in the flesh knows the details of his return. That's very, very different. And here's the difference that got me. When, when I was feeling God's leaning in my heart, I, I, my, my, my love for the Lord was growing, my love for his word was growing, I was feeling God's gift of teaching within me, and it had this passion to teach, and then through this passage, through wise teachers of the word, the letters change. And the change goes from days plural, to day, singular. Look with me. Chapter 24, verse 19. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, plural. Verse 22. And unless those days, plural, were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days, again plural, will be shortened. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, plural, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Up to now, in those days, in those days, in those days, what are those days? The days leading up to and including the destruction of the temple in 87. In those days, here's the sign but we get to this verse, he doesn't say those days, he says that day, or that day and hour. Look at verse 36 again. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Later on in the chapter, verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day, singular, on a day, when he is not looking for him, and at an hour he is not aware of. Chapter 25, verse 13, it's the next chapter, but it's still the Olivet Discourse. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man will come. And now this is consistent throughout the book of Matthew. Let's look at some verses earlier on in Matthew and look at the same terminology, the same use of the singular word day. Matthew 7, verse 22, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, singular, in the day of judgment, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Matthew 12, verse 36. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. One letter difference. And I believe that makes a great deal of difference here. Now, please don't take this to the nth degree that every time... The letter S is missing from the word day. It's talking about the day of judgment because that's not true. Obviously, the day word means a day like we do. But if we are, we're called to study his word faithfully, we're called to study his word by context, 
And the context shows, especially in this passage, that when Jesus is talking about those days, he's talking about the near future. As, G as Pastor Brian said last week, things that will happen in this generation, this generation being the disciples' generation, which we believe is talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And then he also talks about the day. What does the day mean? The judgment day. The day of the physical return of Jesus Christ that culminates history. And the Bible talks a lot about it. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on today. If you have your outline, you want to turn it over. Let's talk about the judgment day. Maybe if you've got books of theology, sometimes it's called judgment day. Sometimes it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes it's called the Bema seat. Different terminology, different words talking about the same thing. In this text, we see, Rome, my son wants to preach today, uh, we see Roman numeral 2, letter A, the judgment day, the return of Christ, will come suddenly. Look at verse 36 again of chapter 24. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. If you go down a few more verses, verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Christ will return, we don't know when or how. This passage screams that at us. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, some time ago, when I was driving to work, my drive to work was pretty far, and at one point in my drive to work, I would drive past three different billboards that said the judgment day is coming on May 21st. Those billboards were paid for by Christians. Shame on them. The word screams, we don't know. And for someone to have the arrogance to say, well, I looked at the stars, I looked at this war happening in the Middle East, and I can figure it out. When the angels can't figure it out, when the Son of Man says that knowledge is held from him while he's on the earth, and we as humans think we can figure that out, may it never be. We have no right predicting. It's going, to it's going to come. The return of Christ will come. But his return will be suddenly. It will be when we don't expect it. And the example given is as a thief. So he uses the two examples. Look at um, verse 37, 38, and 39 with me. The Noah example. Even the kids know the Noah story. Noah's building the ark. Noah and his family. The rest of the world is not. Noah finishes the ark. Noah brings the animals in as God decreed. God closes the door. And then the floodwaters come. The people outside of the ark, they were living life. They were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But they were doing their thing. Once the floodwaters came, you were either in the ark and kept safe by God. Or you were not. And you felt his judgment 
that you deserve. They weren't ready. Those outside of the ark were not ready for his return. And this example is given to us in in regards to the return of Christ. Jesus will return. And at that point, you are either in Christ, kept safe and preserved, or you're not. And if you're not, you feel the wrath and judgment of God that you deserve. That's it. We, we, we have this example. It, it's going to come as quickly and as unexpectedly as it, the floodwaters came for those outside of the ark. And then you've got the example coming as a thief in the night, which is kind of unique. Um, maybe we struggle with that. Why would Jesus compare something about himself to a bad guy? Because a thief's a bad guy. But it's not, Jesus is not saying, I'm like the thief. He's saying the return of Christ is as unexpected as the thief who attacks in the night. It's not, the, the thief doesn't send you a text, hey, by the way, I'm going to rob your house Tuesday at 3.30. The thief comes when you least expect it. And that's the idea that we have in our minds when we think about the return of Christ. And this figure of speech about the return of Christ like a thief is used throughout the New Testament. Let's look at two more passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. That's Paul talking in 1 Thessalonians 5. Look at Peter's words in 2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So Paul and Peter both, they understood the words of Jesus. They understood the value of this figure of speech and used the exact same terminology. We need to know Christ will return and we need to know we're not going to know when it happens. So we need to be prepared. So we see letter A about the judgment day. The day will come suddenly It's also important that we know that this judgment day is for all people, saved and unsaved. I don't know what that did for you when I said that, but when that idea was first introduced to me, I took a step back and and, and something in my radar said, wait a second. I thought if we were in Christ, we weren't going to feel the judgment. So so what do you mean the judgment day is for all people? And and it took me a while to wrap my mind around it. I had to look at the scripture. I needed help. Let's wrap our minds around this together. What my big holdup was, I had a very American view of judgment. Whether you've used the phrase, I believe we've all heard the phrase, don't judge me. When someone says, don't judge me, that's an incomplete sentence. They don't mean, don't judge me. They mean, don't judge me negatively. Because we all want positive judgments. I'll give you an example. Let's say I give a million dollars to charity. Let's say I call the media out to witness me give the million dollar check to charity. So the the cameras are on, they're flashing, and as I give that million dollar check to charity, and I'm on film, I don't then look at the camera and point and say, now nobody judge me. Because what do I want? I want positive affirmation. Love me. Be impressed by this deed. 
Be in awe of my kindness and goodness and gratefulness. You should want your kids to be like me, is what I'm saying. I want a positive judgment. Most of what happens on social media is screaming for positive judgment. Like me, love me, give me positive comments, let me know what a good person I am and what good things I'm doing. So, most Americans say don't judge me, but most Americans want positive judgments all the time. So a judgment is, there is a bar, there's a standard, good or bad. A lot of people maybe don't have very good standards. But you have that standard, and then you make a judgment. That thing I saw you do is in line with what I like, and I deem it worthy. That thing you just did, I don't like it. It doesn't meet my standard, and I deem it unworthy. Are we okay with this idea? Okay. Now you can nod off, and I won't know. I'll think you're nodding and saying it's good. So we naturally, within us, want good judgments. We recognize, maybe we don't say it out loud, but we think about it, we recognize there's good judgment and there's bad judgment. So we have to have that in mind when we think about the judgment day of Christ. Because if we are found in Christ, the judgment day is a very good day for us. It's a day of fear, but it's a good day. If we are not found in Christ, the day of judgment is a very, very bad day. Romans 8.1 promises us there's no condemnation to those in Christ. So we have that promise and we know this can't be bad. For, I'm not going to receive condemnation on the day of judgment because God promises in Romans 8.1 there's no condemnation to those in Christ. I also have the promise I don't earn my way into heaven. So the judgment day is not one of these things where what if I did so many bad things he kicks me out? what if I'm such an evil person when I get there, he doesn't let me in even though I believe in Christ? We need to remind ourselves, heaven is not based on the good things I did. If it is, I'd have no hope. Heaven's based on the good things he did. It's my faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. I don't stand before him on the judgment day in my works. I stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But, even though I don't stand there based on my works, while I'm standing there, I give an account of my works. Every single thing I've done, every single thing I've said, every single thing I've thought, every single thing I didn't do that I should have done. There's Christ and there's me. There is no room for self-justification there is no room for blame shifting. It's me and him. And the horrible things that I've said to those around me, I give an account of. The horrible ways I've treated people that I should be showing love and respect, there's nowhere to hide. And I have to confess to Christ. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I said that. Yes, I spit in your face and rejected your power and chose sin and did that horrible thing. I have to give an account. And there's nowhere to go. 
that doesn't make you tremble in your seat a little bit, I don't know what will. That's what awaits us all. But by God's grace, because there's no condemnation in Christ, as I'm giving that account, and as I'm confessing the horrible things I've done and said, and when I have to say to Jesus, yes, I did that horrible thing, by God's grace, the answer is from Christ, yes, you did that thing, but I died for it and paid for it in full. And you're forgiven. Praise the Lord. So as I'm giving my account, it's the bad things, that's not hard enough, the sinful things I've done have been paid for. And the account for those redeemed in Christ is not about punishment, it's about reward. And the good things that I've done, things I've forgotten about, things that just happened, I hold the door open for somebody, I close it, I move on with my life. And Jesus is honored by that, and he remembers that. And he says, here's your reward for holding that door open for somebody. I'm like, I don't deserve a reward. You want to do a fun study this week? Do a study on eternal rewards. You want to get, like, where do I get started? Get started here. The crowns. Look at how many different types of crowns God promises to his people as eternal rewards in heaven for the good things that they do. And now maybe some of your holiness radars went off. Whoa, pastor. We don't do good things because we get rewarded. We just do good things because we love the Lord. Okay, fine. If God didn't want you to know about the good things he's going to give his children, he wouldn't talk about it over and over and over and over and over. He allows that to be a motivation. He wants to reward his children. And you're going to take that from him? It's Father's Day. Imagine on Father's Day you want to spend time with your kid and someone says, don't do that. You say, back up. If I want to spend Father's Day spending my money on my kids, don't take that back. I love my kids. And you're going to say that to the great eternal father, don't reward your kids? Come on now. Don't put so much holiness on yourself, you mess it up. Look at what the word says. He loves his people. He died for his people. And he wants to reward his people. He's going to reward his people. And on the day of judgment, all things will be made right. There's another side of the day of judgment. The punishment side. We all deserve the punishment. None of us are worthy of God's glory, God's grace. Those who have rejected Christ, they also give an account. Their account is not rewards-based. Their account determines the punishments they will receive for eternity. I'll try to give you an example that might help with this. I think we're all okay with the idea of hell if we're thinking about people like Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, uh, people who do horrible things to kids. We're probably okay with that idea. But maybe some of us struggle with the idea of hell for other people. Um, I bet every single person in this room knows a sweet little old lady who loves people, who's as nice as could be, who wouldn't hurt a fly, who always has, just always smiling, always so good to your kids, your grandkids, fill in the blank. But unfortunately, that nice person doesn't believe in Christ. You know, from a human standpoint, they're as good as can be. From a human standpoint, they're better than us. But that's not the standard. 
and they're rejecting Christ. So then I tell you, if that person rejects Christ, that person suffers. And then you go, come on. You're telling me a loving God is going to put that sweet lady in the same place as Hitler. That sweet lady is going to suffer the same as Hitler. And you go, that, that can't be just. That can't be right. This is where the day of judgment comes in. Because that lady is not going to suffer the same way as Hitler. Because God is a God of justice. So when that lady, this imaginary lady we're, we're talking about, who's very, very nice from a human perspective, but is rejecting Christ, she's going to give an account. Hitler is going to give an account. And Hitler will suffer according to his evil. No more, no less, because God is just. And everybody else that's rejecting Christ will suffer according to their evil, no more, no less. Hitler's suffering will be severely worse than probably anybody we know. Because he deserved worse than probably anybody we know. And again, maybe you're struggling with this. God is a God of justice. And on the day of judgment, justice will be rendered for all. Look at some verses that talk about the all. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Romans 14, beginning in verse 10. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. One more passage, John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So that verse helps the idea of just talking about the, the, it's one judgment day, but there's kind of two judgments. There's the judgment for those that receive the resurrection of life, a judgment that gives gifts to God's children that he's saved. And then there's the resurrection of condemnation. And on their day of judgment, they receive the, the punishment that they deserve for their lives. This judgment day is coming. So with that knowledge, what do we do? Roman numeral two letter C, it calls us to watchfulness. And that watchfulness calls us, to, calls us to activity and faithfulness. Matthew 24, verse 42, the first word is watch. Hopefully you men that were at the breakfast yesterday remember that word. Same word that Pastor Brian talked about from 1 Corinthians 16. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. That word watch, that is not a passive word. It doesn't mean sit around and wait. This word watch is a very active word. It's a demand. Be vigilant and prepared as you watch and wait for something very, very important. Same word used for those that would be the watchmen at night responsible for protecting their whole city. What happens if you're the watchman and you fall asleep on the job and the city comes in? Or the, the army comes into your city? That's destructive for everybody. 
You have no business taking a nap when you have the important responsibility of watching. So we, as God's people, information number one, Christ will return. Information number two, be prepared. This is the call, and Pastor Brian's helped us out with that so much. Every single time we see in the Bible talk about the return of Christ, it, it doesn't sit there. Christ is coming, comma, so prepare. Christ is coming, comma, so do what you can to live for the Lord today. Let's look at some passages. Acts 17, I got that passage in your notes. Maybe when I say Acts 17, you, you Bible nerds that play Bible drippity know, I know Acts 17. That's when Paul talks to the philosophers on Mars Hill. So if you're not familiar with that passage, you can picture the old philosophy, Greek philosophy of the day, and the people sitting around in robes talking about big things, not actually doing any work. That's the day. So there was Paul meeting with all these other people who just sat around talking about how smart they were. They introduced Paul. Paul, come talk to us. So this passage, we're going to read Acts 17, 30 through 31. This is not Paul talking to a church. This is not Paul talking to believers. This is Paul talking to people who are hearing about the one true God for the very first time. And look at how he brings up the idea of the return of Christ. Verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So how do we start thinking about the return of Christ? We start with asking ourselves the question, have I repented? I cannot prepare until I have repented. Have I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone? Because there will be a day I give an account before him. Atheists will give an account before the one true God. Muslims will give an account before the one true God. Fill in the blank fill in the religion, fill in the belief, we will, <laughs> there will be no atheists on the day of judgment. We give an account. No room for excuses there. No time for second chances there. And we don't know when he's coming. I cannot put it off till tomorrow if I have not yet put my faith and trust in Christ he calls you today to repent. Once you've repented, there's more preparing to do. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. As a teacher at a Christian school for many, many years, I had the great privilege of being the bad guy. And when kids got in trouble, they came to me. So kids responded a little differently when I walked into a room. God blessed me with karate training, so I walked really quietly. 
And there'd be times I would enter a room unannounced, and all of a sudden, kids would respond. And they'd move quickly, and they'd grab a book, or they'd put Jimmy down, who they're holding upside down, or whatever the case would be. And they'd really quickly do their best to do right. And they'd say something like, Mr. Gamble, it's so scary when you come in. And I would then go into my preacher mode. If you're doing the right thing when I come in, you don't need to be scared. The kid who's studying doesn't get in trouble when I come in. The kid who's listening to the teacher doesn't get in trouble when I come in. It's the kids who are acting a fool who have to be ashamed when I walk in. When Christ returns, we don't want to be acting a fool. We don't want to have been expecting Jesus to return in five years if we were five years away from getting our act together. He might return tomorrow, so we want to live today for him and for his glory. Our prayer verse of this month has been just a wonderful I don't want to say map. I don't, I don't want to get legalistic. But if we're asking ourselves, if, if you're convicted and you're saying, I want to live for the Lord, I want to prepare for his return, give me some practical things I can do. Our prayer verse for this month is full of practical things we can do to be living for him right now. To be preparing and be watchful for him right now. And let me say, as I'm saying the prayer verse, I pray you guys are praying that too. I hope it's not just Pastor Brian and I praying it once a week where you're exposed to it. I hope as we go through this, we as a congregation are praying these things for ourselves, for our family, and for each other. Um, I, you know, however we do it for me, it's my bookmark. So every month I've got my prayer verse, and it's my bookmark in my Bible. I'm old school. I still actually have a physical Bible that I read. And it's the bookmark. So when I'm done with my reading and I begin my prayer, there it is, written out, typed up for me. And as I'm beginning my prayers, I pray, I read those words, and I pray it. I don't know if you're someone who struggles and needs ideas. That's what I do. That's what helps me. Uh, I take this real seriously. I, I was very convicted. I need to be praying more. I need to be praying his word more. We cheated you this month, though. Because for our month, our prayer this month, we're praying verses 9 and 10. The prayer goes all the way to verse 12. If we look at this whole prayer, and we think of this in the mind set, I want to prepare for his return... Paul says in verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask. So here, let's start working on these things as we seek to prepare for his return. Our desire is that we be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Our pursuit is that we would walk worthy of the Lord, desiring to fully please him, desiring to be fruitful in every one of our good works. We, we seek to increase in the knowledge of God. We, we, we find our strength in his might, according to his glorious power. We desire patience and long-suffering with joy. We're a people that give thanks to the Father. We're a people that understand right here and right now we are partakers of the inheritance of the saints in his life. If we're doing those things, we're watching. 
if we're doing those things and Christ returns tomorrow, you have no reason to be ashamed. We do those things in the daily mundane. We seek those things as we go to work tomorrow with our Monday through Friday schedule. We desire to be the best worker we can be for our boss and for the Lord. The best student we can be for our teachers and for the Lord. At this stage in my life, diaper changing is a major part of my life. It's about to double. So I do it for the Lord. And I change the diapers and, and the aroma is pleasing in God's sight. So I change the diapers for his glory. How ashamed I would be if I put that off and that's when he returned. I had that one last chance to serve my wife and serve my kid. And I put it off because of my own selfishness. May I pursue those. And so that's different. I don't expect to be changing that many diapers in 10 years. So in 10 years, I, I don't know what 10 years is going to look like, but I assume my serving the Lord, my watching, my preparing will be different. So we, as we look around this room, we're all in different circumstances. We're all in different situations. So you look at your life, you say, if this is my life, how do I prioritize scripture reading now? How do I prioritize prayer now? How do I prioritize the worshiping God on Sunday mornings with my brothers and sisters in Christ now, how do I honor God at work today, tomorrow? How do I honor God by taking care of my kids? And it might be different the next year. Praise the Lord for those opportunities. And if you failed 10 years ago, by God's grace, he died for that. And we can be active and work towards it today. How gracious our God is. I wanted to read... The London Baptist Confession of Faith, the last chapter to you. If you look in your notes, there's a QR code. For those of you that know what those are, know how to do that. If you don't know how to use the QR code, there's also the website typed up. For those that know how to do that, if you don't have internet, my dad has memorized the entire Confession of Faith. You can ask him and he will recite it to you and you can write it out while he recites it. If you have a bad wrist and you can't write fast enough, William Hendry and William Gamble will write for you. And there, there's no excuse to not have this amazing chapter before you. Uh, read what they've said. If you go to the website, you'll also see the references. So you say, here's what God's people have believed about the judgment day for hundreds of years by the scripture. And here's the Bible verses they've looked at, why they stand on that. Please read that sometime this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know for a fact Jesus Christ will return. We know for a fact that you have prepared us to be prepared ourselves. You have given us your word. And by your grace, you have given us the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truths of your word and to have the strength to live according to your great purposes right here and right now. We're grateful for that. If we're being honest, we confess that we haven't always lived in remembering, remembrance of that return. And there have been times in our lives we've lived selfishly. Times in our lives we've put our sinful desires before your kingdom. We confess those things 
to you now, recognizing we will again confess those things to you on the day of judgment. And we pray for your forgiveness right now. We pray for your strength right now. We pray that you would often remind us of the fearful reality that we will give an account. And that that fear would lead us to worship. That that fear would lead us to obedience. That that fear would lead us to a greater zeal for evangelism. To reach out to those around us who don't know you. Knowing we don't know how much time we have to share with them before you. Before you call them home or before you return. May we watch. May we love you. We bring these things to your throne in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time in the service, we come before the Lord's table. This is another thing we do with the knowledge of his return. We normally read 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Look at verse 26 with me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he returns. This is part of our watchfulness. This is part of our preparing. We, we, we take this time very, very seriously because God takes this very, very seriously and equips us with this gift as a means of preparing our hearts for his return. So during this time, may we be preparing our own hearts you want to pray with your family, you want to pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ beforehand, please do so. Please feel free to partake with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to sing. And any time during that song when you're ready, please come up and take the elements and take them back to your seat at someone else's seat and, and, and eat and drink in remembrance of our Lord and Savior. This is for those who have repented. This is for those who have been saved by grace. If you do not call yourself a believer, if you've not yet repented, we would ask you to not partake, but we would ask you to come up to us and, and talk to Pastor Brian, talk to myself, talk to someone who invited you to come, and let us, let us share the gospel with you, let us pray with you. Pastor Brian will be over here, I'll be over there if anybody would like to pray. Um, we'd love to pray with you, but let's read God's word, and let's appreciate this gift he's given us. The word reads... For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, let's partake in remembrance of him.